it's a frightening thought, but what if the clinical person you have approached for care is in need of care, him or herself? What if he or she is using drugs or even another substance? For answers to this and many related questions, I am pleased to welcome back to Mind Talk Rodrigo Garcia, who is the CEO of the Parkdale Center in Chesterton, Indiana. Rodrigo, welcome back to Mind Talk. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. It's uh, very much appreciated, and I appreciate you uh, giving us a forum to get some of these questions answered and put some information out there. Well, the the first time we had you on the program, you talked about your own experiences with requiring diversion services for yourself. So just if you can briefly tell us what it means, um, what the, the concept of diversion services for clinicians actually means. What is that? Right. Uh, thank you. So the impaired professional or the, the healthcare professional is at uh, a little higher risk than the general population for misappropriating or diverting medication or practicing while impaired uh, for numerous reasons. They have access to medication, they know how to use the medication, they have very high stressful jobs. So when you're talking in terms of the impaired professional, diversion uh, is one avenue of impairment that we are noticing. Uh, there's a, a, several other ways that a, a, prof- a healthcare professional would be considered impaired. Um, the prescribing medication that they are abusing, prescribed medication, uh, mental health problems, diverting from the hospital to feed the addiction. And what we are in a position to do with the state of Indiana is to safeguard those practitioners going back to work or identifying them when they are in the acute stages of the addiction and providing them the services and the health and the recovery that they need to be able to practice safely uh, again into their field. And and speaking of health and recovery, we talked about it when you and I first met. You yourself actually needed some assistance um, and your recovery includes, as we are speaking today, the organization that you run and the services that you provide for others. So you really have personal awareness of what this feels like, what it looks like, and how it impacts the world around you. That's right. That's right. And uh, several years ago, nearly nine years ago, uh, I, I fell into a category that is a very common group of healthcare professionals when you, in terms of how the addiction or the dependency starts. I had a surgery, I had a prescription, I became dependent first on the medication, and then that morphed into a full-blown physical and psychological addiction. Uh, My uh, addiction was uh, ran its course parallel to my occupation, where the waste medication was using to sustain my addiction, instead of uh, waste medication being medication that was not being used on a patient that was left over, uh, so to speak. Uh, That is generally how we find most of our folks uh, that have this problem that are in the healthcare industry. In order for me to preserve my career and get back to work, if that was even an option, there was a series of, of things that I needed to do uh, that were mandated by other entities, such as the Attorney General's Office and the Board of Nursing and my employer and my family. Uh, there were a lot of uh, factors that went into carving a path back to practice if that was going to be a possibility. And one of those things was being monitored by the state of Indiana, uh, this program uh, was for the impaired nurses at the time, uh, monitored for three years where they would do things like random drug screens, uh, ensure that I got the appropriate level of treatment, mandatory time off work, et cetera, et cetera. 
Uh, we run that program now for the state of Indiana, where we monitor the nurses and we monitor the pharmacists and some of the physician groups. Well, let, let me ask you this. Um, you, you heard me pose the question at the beginning of our conversation. What if your clinician is actually in need of care himself? So I ask you, if you are a patient and you think there's something going on with your healthcare professional, or if you are a colleague of another professional and you think something might be going on, what do you do? Sure. I think the biggest challenge to that is going to be the general awareness, getting this information out to the public and knowing that they, uh, they do have recourse if they suspect some, some of those things. And the, the course is going to be a little bit differently. So if you're in the general public and you suspect somebody may or may not be impaired under, under any circumstance, uh, they, have, uh, they have the ability to file a consumer complaint report with the Office of the Attorney General. The Office of the Attorney General will then open up an investigation, which may include uh, addiction screenings, personality profiles, uh, mental health screenings. Uh, they will open up a, uh, an investigation based off of that complaint, and they would set into motion a series of events that will continue to safeguard the public. If you're an employee, employee, employer, a coworker, a colleague, uh, that suspects this at work, you have that recourse, but you also have the ability to call the Indiana Professional Recovery Program. This is the program that is set up to help healthcare professionals uh, interface with their addiction and the monitoring boards and making sure that they're safe to practice. So very similarly, they will open up an investigation and they will um, ascertain whether that provider is indeed impaired and they need the help in this instance or if this is a case of something else. Well, you just mentioned specifically uh, an Indiana uh, organization that one can report to. Is this a national uh, option, or is it state by state? Or talk to me. Sure. So, yeah. So, some of the uh, physician groups or some of the other specialty groups have a national chapter of a similar program. So, every board, a licensing board for healthcare professionals, whether it's dentistry podiatry, pharmacy, nursing, medicine, they have a very similar program uh, that helps guide their professionals back into practice and helps them in those acute stages of, of trouble if they're in trouble. Every state does it a little differently. The requirements to enter the program and the requirements to complete the program are a little bit different as well. Um, most of them interface with each other, but every state does have some type of uh, what they would call an alternative to discipline program for their licensed health professionals who need this kind of assistance. So let me ask you uh, what one would look for if I'm working, let's say, in a hospital and I think something may be going on with my colleague, what kind of behaviors would I look for? What kind of behaviors would say to me, maybe I need to look a little deeper? Or maybe I need to make a report. So that was that. That question is easier to answer if you would think about the stereotypical uh, characteristics of someone who's in the throes of alcoholism or addiction or impairment. And if we think stereotypically of what we have been born and raised and in, in culture to uh, recognize those symptoms of someone who's a degenerate and they're disheveled and uh, they're slurring their speech and they're stumbling across the pathway. Uh, that is what we have come to believe the addiction looks like. But when we're looking 
in this day and age, and in particular in the healthcare industry, where they're educated and they're experienced and uh, they're well put together, it's very hard to pick out the signs and symptoms unless the addiction is in the later stages. So what we have come to, to, to realize, what we have come to see following a couple reports that are out there, is that the impaired professional looks like this. They're intelligent. They graduate in the top 25% of their class. They're well-liked. They hold advanced degrees. Uh, they're charming. They're likable. They're the best of the best. So when you're looking for impairment based on symptomology alone, it's very difficult to discover because they don't look like your typical stereotypical addict. They look like your best and your brightest. They come in early. They stay late. They give all the breaks. Uh, they're, they're your super workers. And that's why it's often a, um, a little bit of a denial to get the person help because there's, there's no way they could be using. They, they're, they're our best employee. And the codependency is wrapped around that and keeps them in the workforce much longer than they need to be. And like I said, once the physical symptoms that you would expect, uh, the, the sleepiness, the coming in late, the disheveled appearance, those are the later stages of the addiction. So if you're going off just physical characteristics and appearances, those are the ones that you would look for. They're coming in late, um, they look disheveled, they're losing weight, attitude change is a big one, they're starting to get irritable and, and grumpy, uh, changes in their disposition. Uh, those are some of the ones that would stick out. Interesting. Rodrigo, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we will continue with folks, Rodrigo Garcia, who is uh, the CEO of the Parkdale Center in Chesterton, Indiana. My name is Pamela Brewer. You are listening to Mind Talk. Don't go away. We'll be right back. I want you to talk to us about the quote-unquote recovery rate. Are there any statistics on uh, the folks who take part in this kind of a program, their ability to return back to work? Yeah, that's, there's a lot of variables that go into that, and this is the best that we uh, know in terms of statistics on what works and what doesn't work. And, and this really does apply, too, for the, the general population. And, uh, following this kind of formula. So we know that if somebody were to detox from medication, detox meaning just they stop using it, and there's a lot of variety of different ways how they can stop using it. They can go to a detox clinic. Uh, they can get locked up in jail and not used uh, for a series of days. Uh, they can stop cold turkey. The folks that just use a mechanism of stopping their use and nothing else, they have about a 90% relapse rate within the first six months. Wow. Now, you move over to the next step, and if they detox, you get them to stop using the medication, and then you give them some kind of accountability. So whether that's a probation from the court system, whether that's this alternative to discipline program for healthcare professionals, some kind of accountability where they're being held to the fire in terms of uh, compliancy. They're doing random drug screen testing, uh, as you would have in a probation system or with the alternative to discipline program. Um, they have some kind of accountability and consequence if those tests come back positive. They have about a 55% success rate or 45% relapse rate. So it's almost the, the, the coin flip, which is not very reassuring if you're going back into the profession or any kind of lifestyle for that matter. 
So that's that's step number two. Now, step number three, if you get them to stop using and detox them, you put them in a monitoring program with accountability, and you ensure that they start this entire process with proper treatment, uh, proper treatment for their profession, for their employment, for their disease, and whether it's dual diagnosis, mental health, that gets considered. Now we're looking at statistics that are, are much more in line with the general population. After one year, 85% of those folks will succeed, 15% will relapse, which is uh, the same addiction rate as the general population. This is the reason why uh, many in the healthcare industry need to be off work for one year to allow that neuroplasticity of the brain to heal itself and uh, back to pre-addiction use. If you maintain that formula for three years, their success rate goes up to 90%. And if you maintain that exact same formula for five years, their relapse rate is uh, less than 5%. Their success rate is 95%. Well, you know, I'm thinking about the person, even if the person who's just off work for a year, and this is the reason they're in a program, are they ever able to regain their license and go back to their chosen profession is this a a, a, uh, is this a poor indicator of an opportunity to return to work just the fact of being in the Uh, program yeah that's a great question that's a great question so uh and if i understand the question correctly so you've been in this program now there's a paper trail that you're in this program what will the next employer think when they said oh this guy's been in the program he may be a little higher risk right yes that's absolutely a consideration and um, what we encourage and the word that we, we try to get out as, as soon as we can, as fast as we can, is if you get into this program voluntarily, if you raise your hand and ask for help and say, things are going south, I need a little bit of assistance, how do I maintain my profession and safeguard my career? These programs are confidential. As long as the participant is compliant in the program, their ability to practice will maintain uh, throughout the entire monitoring program. The folks that have sometimes a difficult time getting back to work and raise the red flags are the ones that get caught. So they get caught diverting, they show up to work impaired, a patient will report them to the attorney general, et cetera, et cetera. Then they are mandated into this program and then the paper trail begins. Uh, However, the reassuring thing is that we are starting to see some employers, um, many employers actually, that are seeing the value in hiring somebody who's in this program. Because uh, this program is being monitored, uh, this patient is being monitored, this potential employee is being monitored. They are being uh, safeguarded against the public. They are probably one of the few employees in their employee pool that you know exactly what they're doing and their sobriety and their health and their wellness and their mental stability. So some of the employers are starting to realize that there's a huge value in having these very loyal, monitored uh, healthcare providers work, in, work on, their, on their team. That's a really fascinating perspective. One of the things that you said earlier that I want to go back to, because I know it's a concern of yours, is that, yes, uh, states have programs, but they can be different in different states. What, what are your thoughts about that? Is that helpful, not helpful? It definitely leaves a loophole out there uh, to be exploited, as, as you know, or you may know that the nursing license have what they call compact states. And what that turns out to be is a lot of reciprocation for their nursing license. So a nurse may be licensed in multiple states. So with a real quick Internet search, you can see which alternative to discipline program may be more favorable or more lenient. 
And if you choose to monitor in that state, you may not get as strong or as solid as an alternative to discipline program. And there are still some states out there that don't have an alternative to discipline program at all. We're still uh, trying to catch up with that. So uh, there's definitely a push and there's a coalition and there's a national organization that's pulling together all of these programs to uh, unify the process and at least make the requirements as similar as we can. Uh, and like I said, some of the groups that are very successful, like the physicians groups, they have a more unified national program that it's going to be the same in every state that you go in. So something that's definitely on our radar and in the industry, we're working towards unifying that same process uh, throughout every state. For those listening who are clinicians, you, you mentioned that in part because they tend to look like the, the cream of the crop, there can be a lot of denial. So for someone listening who perhaps is perceived by his or her peers as just being an incredibly wonderful employee, how do they monitor themselves to get a sense that something may be going on? H- how does um, the, the nurse or the doctor or the anesthesiologist, how do they look at themselves and say, yeah, maybe something's going on or maybe I don't need to worry? Sure. Yeah, great point. And it's, a, it's something that really has to start in the educational system. When these practitioners are going through their formal education, uh, oftentimes by virtue of them obtaining the knowledge and the education and the resources to do their job, they lose a very important part of self-awareness. And it's this awareness that needs to be reinforced and reminded. And on the treatment side, this, this revisiting of this self-awareness and this mindfulness is something that's integral into the addiction treatment side. So until we can get into the residency programs, even the didactic portions in the undergrad schools, and, and let them know that the self-care and you come first, uh, the physicians and the nurses by, in general, by definition, are trained to put patient over self. They come in early, they stay late, they miss t-ball games, they don't take breaks, they take patient loads that are uh, exorbitant. Um, and it is a culmination of all of those things of putting your job and your patients and everyone else before your mental well-being and your uh, physical health that is a contributing force to this. So you know, to, to answer the question, we have to get back to self-awareness. We have to get better to uh, self-care as healthcare providers. You know, I think about some of the clinicians who work in environments that, you know, the, the bulk of their income comes from the insurance companies. And so there, there's a lot of structure around how many people you need to see and what amount of time you can give to each person. So the idea of having an exorbitant patient load, that may not be something that is truly within the clinician's control. What then? Right. That, that's absolutely right. The way the system is currently is, is uh, not set up to be conducive for healthy practitioners all the time. Uh, one of the things that we teach when they come through the addiction is uh, very basic self-awareness and self-care that most people that are healthy have figured out. You don't pick up overtime. You limit the amount of shifts that you work. Uh, you take breaks when you're supposed to take breaks. You limit how many uh, how early you come in and how late you stay. You take care of your family first. You exercise. You meditate. You eat healthy. It's all, all of those things that when you compound those, it, it, it sets the stage for a healthy lifestyle and a healthy living. So there's a lot of things that you can do and that we find those in the throes of the addiction and the alcoholism. They don't do it any longer. 
so they don't take care of themselves outside of the, the, the hours of, of working hours. And those are the things that they need to get back to that they can do that have a profound impact on their overall health. And, you know, as I hear you uh, sort of listing all the things that go into um, healthy well-being, I'm also, and I know you are too, keenly aware of how much just society at large really kind of pushes back against that when it is someone who is working in the healthcare field. Uh, because the expectation is that they're going to be there all the time to answer all of your needs whenever you need them to. Uh, and, and so, you know, it's an interesting, it's, it's an interesting dynamic where you're taught to put self last and your patients first, but if you continue to do that, as you say, you wind up actually harming yourself and ultimately your patients as well. Absolutely. And, and, you know, and one step further from that, that behavior is rewarded. You see yes. more patients, you get more reimbursements. You come in early and you stay late and you forego your, your child's t-ball game, you get employee of the month. And it's this repetitive cycle over time. And all it needs is one little spark in this tinderbox, one little spark of a bad day or a life event, and you're off to the races with the drugs and the alcohol that, that can temper down a lot of those maladaptive responses and maladaptive feelings that you're having. I want to talk a little bit about uh, Parkdale, um, which is the facility that that you are in charge of. Uh, I noticed on the website, and I'm going to ask you to give us that website in a second, that you are CARF accredited, C-A-R-F accredited, which is no easy task. Could you just let people know what CARF accreditation means when they're looking at a facility. Absolutely, absolutely. So the institutions and healthcare provider institutions like hospitals and clinics, uh, a lot of them are required to get this accreditation. What the accreditation process entails is a national recognition by experts in the field that determine that your program has met uh, certain standards that would qualify it as uh, not only appropriate care, but excellent level of care. So it's a it's a costly uh, consideration to get the accreditation. There's a lot of program programmatic issues that need to be addressed and identified. But once you get this accreditation status, it's an ongoing improvement and analysis of your program to make sure that the program is uh, qualified to give you the appropriate care that you need. So when folks are looking for levels of care and they're looking for treatment in any, across any spectrum of the healthcare industry, if you see that they're accredited by a national facility like the CAR for the Joint Commission, um, which accredits the hospitals, you can rest assured that an outside entity has come in and said that that program, that hospital, those clinicians, that facility is above and beyond the cream of the crop. They're, they're the top of the top, and that's the kind of facility you should be receiving care at. So you should actually look for it, whether you are uh, a part of the general population or a clinician, and I think clinicians would know, you really want to look at facilities that have one or both of those accreditations. Is that a fair statement? That's, that's an absolutely fair statement. Yeah, you definitely want to go to a facility that has put the time and the effort and the clinicians in place to receive that, uh, that accreditation. Um, you can get accredited for one to three years, and sometimes after the accreditation uh, process, they'll say, you're almost there. 
you have to improve these couple areas. And once you do that, we'll give you your accreditation. Uh, so we're in our second, uh, third year since of full accreditation. And when you're looking for a facility, you should absolutely look for a facility that is accredited uh, by an outside third party. Rodrigo, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, I'd like for you to tell us a little bit more about the kinds of approaches and services that Parkdale offers. Uh, folks, this is Pamela Brewer. You are listening to Mind Talk. Don't go away. We'll be back in a moment. Rodrigo, uh, before we talk about Parkdale, I want to go back to something you said a little bit earlier. Uh, for the impaired clinician who is taking this program, it sounded like you were saying that they should think about being away from their employment for at least a year. Is that what you said? Uh, there's some specialty practices, like the practice of anesthesia, the physician, some of the physician specialties, that the recommendation, best practice recommendation, is to stay away from uh, that area of practice for a minimum of a year. That is correct. Uh, and by and large, most healthcare professionals do not have to stay away for that long. But if you're, a, for an example, an opioid-addicted anesthesia provider getting your medication from work, the disease process has progressed in such a way that you need to stay away from that environment and those triggers for at least a year for the brain uh, to allow the brain to heal back down to pre-addiction levels. Yeah, that makes sense. But let me ask you this. Let's say you're an impaired clinician and you are the sole source provider for your family. How do you think about volunteering to go into a program that you kind of know is going to say to you, mm, you need to not be at work for a year? That's right. That's right. So uh, for those, so again, most clinicians don't have to take off the entire year. Most of them can take off the time during their, their course of treatment and then get back to work under a controlled, regulated environment. Uh, however, this speaks to the importance of self-reporting, raising your hand and asking help. By and large, most employers will say, please take some time off work, get better, here's some short-term disability. If you need long-term disability, we can roll you into that long-term disability, and then your job will be ready for you when you come back. Okay. So doing this preemptively, doing this voluntarily, and being proactive about the situation will often put them in a trajectory where they can continue to generate income and secure their job for when they're ready to return. Okay. Tell us um, quickly, if you can, about the Parkdale approach. I noticed that you do several assessments, uh, medical, family, genetic, dietary, spiritual, detoxification. Why so many assessments? What are you looking for? Uh, we're really looking for anything that's, uh, that's uh, hidden and undiscovered. And uh, the only way that we can find that is do a completely holistic approach, uh, all-encompassing approach, uh, evidence-based approach. So we look at all of the dynamics that go into self-care and self-awareness. So we're looking at the medical, the psychiatric, the psychological, the genetic. We're putting this, uh, compiling this comprehensive picture together so that we can see how one area of deficit will 
play into the other one and ultimately uh, presents itself as an addiction. And then we treat all of them, which what we call the dual diagnosis model. So we treat the behavioral health, the addiction on one model, and we treat the mental health uh, on the other. We do those concurrently. How can folks get more information about what you're doing and what Parkdale is doing, and just in general, this whole area of impaired uh, clinician recovery? So uh, we'll start with Parkdale. You can find more information about Parkdale on the website at uh, parkdalecenter.com, www.parkdalecenter.com, all one word. Or they can give us a call at 888-883-8433. Uh, a quick internet search will, will give you all the information you're really uh, probably looking for as far as impaired, um, impaired healthcare professionals. Uh, the national group that kind of conglomerates all of these programs across the country is called the National Organization of Alternative Programs. And a quick internet search of that will give you all of the organizations in your state and contact referrals in your state if you would need those services. The National Organization of Uh, alternative programs. Terrific. Rodrigo, thank you so much for joining us again and for sharing your experiences and your expertise with the Mind Talk audience. Always a pleasure, Dr. Brewer. Thank you so much for having me. Thank, and again, thank you. And folks, thank you for joining us today on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you as an educational public service. It is not intended to replace any work that you may choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. If you'd like to be in touch with me directly, you can certainly email me. That's P A M. E-L-A at mindtalk.org. That's M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. And when you go to the Mindtalk website, all of the programs that we do are available on demand. And you can also get a list of the other venues in which Mindtalk is available. Folks, remember always, if it's unacceptable, then it's unacceptable. You take care. Thank you.